the big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The Big Silence. Hello and welcome to the Big Silence podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go. Mental health is my wealth. The stress upon the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seek and ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence. The big silence. Hello, hello. How are you? Karina here. So happy you're back. I'm going to jump right into this one. So... Our guest today is Marianne Williamson. It was such an honor to be able to sit with her in person. And I've been, you know, following her work since she's for 20 years. She's an activist, author, non-denominational spiritual teacher, New York Times bestselling author, and she ran for Democratic nomination for president of the United States in 2020, and she is running again in 2024. She was just such, I mean, I was nervous, honestly, because I've just looked up to her for so many years, and her books have been such a great part of my self-wealth, self-help journey and healing my own uh, trauma. So the fact that she was in Austin, in studio, thank you, Marianne, for coming out. And um, yeah, share this with any friends, anyone who wants to get to know Marianne even more and enjoy the pod. Share, leave a review, all the stuff. All right, I'll see you on the flip side. Welcome to the podcast, Marianne Williamson. Oh, thank you for having me. Here in Austin, it's hot. Are you hot here? Well, yeah, but I was born and raised in Houston, so. Oh, you're a Texan. Heat is something that I know. You know, when I found out I was honored with the chance to interview you, I never get nervous meeting people. But I have been reading your books, following you, when I started my own healing journey and spirituality journey in my early 20s. So it's been a very long time. And I'm now that you're here in my home podcast studio, I am just so honored. Oh, thank you. That is such a sweet thing to say. Thank you. Thank you. And the millions of lives that you've already changed and supported 
and the future that and you just you keep going and you have this this passion and this purpose. And I want to bring this in because my friend Cammy texted me last night. She's like, Will you share with Marianne my favorite quote? It's from A Return to Love, which I've read that book at least once. It is, as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Explain what that means to you. Well, first of all, the subtitle of that book, that's from my book, A Return to Love. And the subtitle is Reflections on the Principles of A Course in Miracles. So what I'm doing in that paragraph is just reflecting on the idea that all minds are joined and that your greatest contribution to the world is what you demonstrate. Your greatest contribution to other people's empowerment lies in your own. That we're all subconsciously communicating with each other all the time. And when you are standing in the space of your best self, as it were, you are reminding other people, well, that is possible. And when you are in that space, you are your most compassionate, you are your kindest, you are your most generous. So that's your greatest service to the world. You know, when we are in victimhood, when we are in our own distressed places, which sometimes are authentic and real and need to be processed, don't get me wrong. But there's also a place for knowing when enough is enough. For knowing even though we have to claim our darkness, we have to own our darkness, we also need to claim and own our light, especially these days. We need to be strong, powerful people to rise to the challenge of this quite critical time. And I think all of the things that you've written, that I've written, that so many of us have talked about, transforming out of the darkness into the light, out of the fear into the love, out of the weakness into the strength, is so that then we can take the step from there. Yeah. I mean, we're not enlightened masters at any point. I mean, one day, theoretically, hopefully we will be. That's the goal. We're always, as we move along, having to process whatever is up at the time. But I think the zeitgeist of this moment is to be in that light. How did you get to this spiritual journey of yours? Because you, you know, everyone has our journey and our path and what we're seeking for something brighter and deeper and understanding life a little more. But was there a darkness that you went through? Absolutely there was. But I think the 20s are hard for everyone. Yeah. Um, So... Sometimes we make too much about the specifics of a story. I think if there's anything unique about my story, it's that there wasn't anything unique about it. Mm -hmm. There wasn't actually the one, like when you and I were speaking earlier, as you've written about, there wasn't any one big thing like that. There was what I now look back on as having been an almost garden variety process of individuation, not knowing who I was, the same drama that any body in their 20s is going through. I mean, there were vicissitudes of it. I had left college. Um, Difficulties, but not difficulties that were that different than anyone else's. Right. And I think that's important to point out, too, because I have had friends, especially in my 20s, who were like, I I can't relate to you because I haven't had any traumatic experience. Life is traumatic. Yeah, life overall. I was like, no, we're still the same. We're we're humans. This is life. Like, you don't have to have a, a you know, it's not a 
a race or a contest of who's had the most trauma in our lives. We're all experiencing this. I think it was Steinbeck who said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I think that if anyone speaks the deeper truth of what they're really going through, there's more pain in the middle of the night for more people than we know. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that more? Because, I mean, everyone I know and, you know, a lot of my friends are 30s, 40s. And when you say pain in the middle of the night, I'm literally speaking. I would even take that literal where your thoughts when you sleep. Have you ever experienced this? Like when you're like in the, during the day, I can control my thoughts and through meditation. But um, in our sleep, it's hard to control thoughts. And I've had a lot of friends having anxiety in their sleep. Well, if it's anxiety when you're sleeping, it's actually anxiety that was also there during the day. Yeah. You were simply able to suppress it. But, you know, sometimes psychic pain has a purpose. It's there to tell us something. We call it anxiety. We just slap this word anxiety on it as though, by definition, it's a weakness. But the truth is that we're living at a time where the fact that people are upset is functional. If you break your leg, your body, your brain emanates pain. And it's important that you're in pain because it's telling you to reset that leg. The fact that so many people are depressed today we're being told by our deepest self, reset the society, reset this world. Right. And you so, talk about society needing a spiritual intervention. Exactly. So what's your advice on that? We learn principles in the spiritual, transformational, religious, uh, psychotherapeutic world. We learn that there are principles of life and that aligning ourselves with those principles means asking ourselves, what does it mean to be a good person? What is the higher purpose of my life? What is it to be ethical? What is it to be generous? What is it to clear my stuff? What is it to own my shadows? What is it to clear my past? You know, we do that work, therapy, religion, spirituality, whatever you do. But we have developed this odd dissociation as a society, where all those principles that we acknowledge matter in our personal lives, we've allowed ourselves to buy into an attitude that they have nothing to do with the collective. We don't have to ask how to be a good country. We don't have to ask how to be a generous country. We don't have to ask what's the higher purpose of a country. We don't have to ask what is, uh, where, have, where does this country get it right? Where does this country have something to atone for? But the truth of the matter is all that a country is is a collection of individuals. So the same principles that prevail within the life of an individual prevail within the life of the collective. I think of a woman that I knew named Barry Berenson. If you had said to me, Marianne, pick five people that you know. And if, if these five people could be what the world sees as what an American is like, that would be really good. Well, guess what? She just happened to be flying from Boston to Los Angeles to see her son uh, play in his rock and roll band. And she was on one of the planes that went down on 9-11. So this had nothing to do with her personal karma. It had to do with the national karma. And I think that more and more people are realizing there's no way to wall yourself off from 
the ultimate horrors that could beset us if we do not correct course. Just like there are times in our individual lives and people who love you say, girl, you got to change. And even like drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, like you're on a path. You're on a path that could be deadly. And that's sometimes what people who love you say. And that's what I mean by an intervention. That's what an intervention is related to drugs or alcohol. The realization that if you abuse your body in certain ways too much, physical survival is not guaranteed. And I think that people are waking up to if you abuse this planet too much in too many ways, the habitability of the planet is not guaranteed. You abuse or transgress against the principles of your democracy too often, too many ways, and the survival of your democracy is not guaranteed. I think people are realizing this. And those of us who have a background where we do understand concepts like an intervention have a lot to give to the, have a lot to give to the conversation. Because the way our society is acting right now is like the alcoholic that says, I can manage this. And people with any kind of background in real transformation or recovery or anything now go, no, you actually can't manage it. And it's a progressive disease, as they say. And I think that that's uh, what's happening in America today. Something's gone too far. And I think that actually the majority of people realize it now. So if someone's by themselves, how can we individually uh, make change within ourselves so then we can individually help the world become a better place? Like, what are some tips? Well, I think at this point, whether people are learning it through therapy, whether people are learning it through religion or spirituality, and I think certainly the type of people who would be listening to your program know the answer to that. The issue is, are you doing it? Yeah. Right? At this point, um, you either have a meditation and prayer practice, you have a, um, a, a, a discipline for your mind and your body, um, and you're doing it every day. Sometimes. Well, but that's what I was going to get to. <laughs> yeah. Or you have that discipline, but you know in your heart you're not really doing it enough. Or you are saying, well, this sounds right to me, but I don't know where to go. And if you have that on your heart, yeah, I know I need that stuff, then books will fall at your feet. It could be a, it could be a program like yours for the physical, somebody else's program about food, somebody else's program in meditation. There, it's everywhere. Modern society is like a candy store. If you want to transform your body, your health, your heart, your mind, none of this, uh, I just don't know what to do anymore. And I don't think that people are, I hope they're not pretending to themselves that they don't know. I don't think we're living at a time where the zeitgeist is, I don't know what to do. The zeitgeist for more people today is, I am not yet owning what I know. Well, okay, what about people in mental health deserts? So you saw that big bus out there, and Bobby has his license to drive that thing. And we've gone into mental health deserts, and people who, um, you know, don't have resources, don't even know about, about mental health, they'll run up to the bus and we sit out there and talk to them and explain about mental illness and mental health and start sharing my story. And then they'll go get their co- co-worker in the fast food place and they'll all come out and just talk to us. And they're like, my gosh, I've never talked about this. Yeah, my my husband has schizophrenia, um, you know, but I, I don't know what to do. I just live with it. Oh, another kid is like, I have depression, but I can't get medication. I don't know. What. So, but 
I would say not everybody knows what to do because in those mental health deserts, they don't have the education. They probably don't, um, the resources, the internet, the, you know, it, not, I would say not everybody knows what to do. So how do we reach those people? So I appreciate you're saying that because I was speaking to a specific kind of demographic. Um, so thank you. And uh, you're absolutely correct. But I, I want to point something out. There are the psychotherapeutic um, conditions such as schizophrenia. And you know far more than I do, but I know enough to know that these are very definite, specific uh, mental conditions for which all kinds of medical, possibly even psychopharmacological interventions are appropriate. And my answer to that is they should be available to everyone because I believe that we should have universal health care as they have in every other advanced democracy, and that should include mental health. Okay, that's that group. But you also said something very interesting. You pointed how many times that the person in that mental health desert was working at a fast food restaurant. So can we talk about the real elephant on the table, which is poverty in America? And I, it, America has got to stop pretending that our mental health crisis, that one of the main causes is not mental, uh, is not economic stress and anxiety. The majority of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. One in four Americans live uh, with medical debt. Debt is crippling. Millions of Americans live with these college loans debt. I can't even imagine being in my 20s carrying tens of thousands of dollars worth of college loan debt. How could you not be depressed or anxious? And how dare they say this only is about your chemistry, your brain chemistry. They're doing that to make money and to distract us to distract us from some of the deeper societal causes of what is going on here. When you have the majority of Americans who cannot afford to absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure, and you talk about people who lie awake at night with thoughts that keep them up, how could you not? You have two children. How am I going to feed them? What happens if I lose my job? Do you know how many homeless people in America today? A high percentage of homeless people in America today are working. Mm. Do you know that there were my over... My mom was th- one of them. Thank you. Mm-hmm. There were over 3 million uh, evictions last year. And they just lifted the moratorium. And many of the people who are, who are homeless in America, one, one in five community college students... In, in California are living in their car. Don't tell me this is just a mental health crisis that they're hardly holding on. Of course they're anxious. Of course they're depressed. But there's a deeper issue here, which is how much of our society is organized in such a way that people are having to struggle just to hold on. And it's one thing to have a situation where that was a bad year. There are people who are locked into that month after month, year after year, and people's lives are falling apart. So instead, well, what we do uh, on those situations, now, as I, as I mentioned, you're absolutely correct. When you're talking about schizophrenia, et cetera, I see that as a very different, and I'm not yeah. weighing in on this because right. I, I, I know enough to acknowledge that it is bipolar and so forth. Uh, what, what do we do about what I just said? I want to point out that in the 1970s, the average working American could afford a car and could afford a house. 
and could afford a yearly vacation and could afford one parent to stay home and could afford to send their kids to college. What we do is end the aberrational chapter of American history, which has seen $50 trillion. That's a massive transfer of wealth into the hands of 1% of Americans. What you do is you give people universal health care, including mental health. What you do is give people tuition-free college and tech school, which, by the way, both of those, universal health care and tech school, they have in every other advanced democracy. What you do is you give people child care. You give people paid family leave. You give people a guaranteed minimum, uh, excuse me, livable wage, not just minimum wage. Our minimum wage in this country is $7.25 an hour. That's not a living, that's not even close to a living wage, not even close. So one third of America's workforce live for less than $13 an hour and half of them cannot find homes. So how could those people not be traumatized just by the daily toll of living? How could those people not be anxious? How could those people not be thinking every single night, oh my God, what if I lose my job? Well, and I like to use the story of my mother because I can relate to all of this where when, you know, prior to me being her caretaker the last five years of her life, she was in and out of her car. She's a social worker. She's helping other people. Had her bachelor's degree. She couldn't afford a home. But she went to work every day. And I would get her, I mean, you know, she also had a mental illness um, diagnosed. And, you know, she struggled with it and she knew it. But she was afraid of the stigma around it. So she didn't want to take any medication for it. But, you know, I would help her. I'd be like, let me get you a hotel and this. And, you know, she traveled around. But she worked hard. She did. And, but, and then once she had a stroke, she was in the hospital and up in Seattle. And I went and talked to the doctor and they were caring for her physical health, and I was talking to him about her mental health. And they're like, we, we don't deal with mental health here. I was like, but she needs help. Like, you can't, we're, we're going to release her. And they're like, the insurance company said she's got to go. I was like, well, she's not, she's not healthy. You can't send her home. She will die. And they're like, well, her insurance is done. And so I moved her to California and took care of her. And I just, that was like my closest experience with the healthcare system of, me fighting with doctors, trying to, number one, keep her alive when her insurance was running out. Number two, how there's not a, um, they don't combine mental and physical health, which I believe is very, it's related. Bigger issue there is the tyranny of the insurance companies. Once again, in every other advanced democracy, they have universal health care, period, end of story. It's your physical, it's your mental, it's whatever you need. Can you imagine what this country would be like? There's just a sigh of relief. You could hear it if people just didn't have to worry about that. The idea that an insurance company is saying to anybody, you cannot have the treatment that you need. We have 85 million Americans, uninsured or underinsured. We have 18 million Americans who cannot afford to pay for the prescriptions that their doctors give them. We have 68,000 people who die every year from lack of health care. Now, what you just said, if you had not been there, that's right. That happens every single day. And that is what happens in a society. And this goes back to what we were saying before. That's not a good society. A good person doesn't let someone suffer needlessly. But we have this tyranny. It is tyranny. We don't even need the insurance companies. But the middleman doesn't even need to exist. It's only about greed. This is why we have 1.3 million people 
who are rationing their insulin in this country. This doesn't happen in any other advanced democracy. And in some countries that aren't even democracies. The idea, if you go to England, France, or Italy, the idea of people rationing their insulin or putting up GoFundMe pages on the internet for operations, life-saving operations, because of all the people who go to the doctor, the insurance will cover the doctor's visit, but the insurance cover coverage will not cover the medicine or will not cover the treatment. And so whether it's physical or mental, and part of one of the ways in which they're interfaced is that if I don't have the money for my physical treatment, this puts me in mental trauma. Once again, one in four Americans live in medical debt. That's enough to cause severe anxiety. There are people in this country who are deciding, do I pay my rent or buy my insulin? So some people say, well, if I'm alive, at least I'm there for my kids. So sorry, kids, we're not going to have the apartment next month. We're going to have to move into our car, but mommy at least will have her insulin. This is insane. So when we talk about The mental illness, it's like when Krishnamurti said, it's no sign of mental health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. There's a sickness there, and that goes back to what we're talking about. We need a spiritual intervention because that's heartless. What they said to you about your mother is heartless. Oh, I know. I cried. (laughs) I cried. They actually told me to, uh, she had two weeks to live and just take her home. And I was like, no. I'm not doing that. So that's when I moved her to California and I stopped feeding her crappy hospital food and got her on the green juice and got her lifting water bottles. She lived five more years, got her the best health care. But again, people, I took care of her. You know, she's my mother, but not everybody has that resource. So let's look at that. You're absolutely right. What you had at that time, money. Mm-hmm. You have to have money in America today mm-hmm. to have easy access to mental health care, to have easy access to physical health care, to have easy access for higher education. It's wrong. It's immoral. And the group of people who have enough money to have easy access to all those things is always shrinking. It should be expanding. And instead, in policy after policy after policy, we shrink it. Now, America is now set up in such a way that once you have, the system has give. The system has give. You could lose everything tomorrow and you've achieved enough that the system would help you get back up. But the majority of Americans, there's no wiggle room. And the kinds of things you're talking about with your mother, what it means to someone that they can't get health care, what will happen to my kids, Mm -hmm. where will we live? This is very real. Yeah. And this is why we must intervene. An intervention like that takes time. Well, we don't have the time. Right. We, it has gone so far that we are now six inches from the cliff. And that's why I'm running for president. Yeah. There is no like, oh, get the message out there. That's so not what this is about. Now, it, it, no president can walk in and with a magic wand make all those changes like that. But it's an important element. And tweaking things here and tweaking things there, there are so many millions of people like your mother who are not blessed with the daughter who is blessed with the possibilities to take care of her. People die. And children who aren't even 10 years old and are already locked out of any potential 
because they're not even taught to read. So their chances of high school graduation are less than their chances of incarceration. We're at a point now where the situation, there's a rumbling underneath of so much despair. This mental health crisis is not separate from the rest of what's going on. People's lives are falling apart. You've given your life to addressing this. It's going to, it's unsustainable. Something's going to break. It's going to break one direction or the other. And that's what you said, take time. We don't have time. It's like an earthquake. You can, you can hear the distant rumbling. It's going to break in the direction of we got to get on this and we got to get on this quick. And we have to give a massive, massive um, infusion of economic hope and opportunity, including healthcare to millions and millions of Americans, or it's going to break in the direction of dystopia and authoritarianism and possibly worse. Some people will be protected, but not the vast majority from the horrors that would then accrue. And our youth, let's talk about our youth. Highest amount of youth suicides now. I want a department of children and youth. You know, when we talk about how society works in such a heartless way, and some of the ways that you and I have been talking about here, many people say the fact that our economic system is dominated by a kind of ruthless vulture capitalism. You mentioned earlier your husband just didn't even want to do with it, you know, so I know that both of you have seen the high side and the shadow side. Um what has happened is that people say, well, the biggest collateral damage of a system that sees short-term profits for corporations and sees that as the bottom line and gives that precedence over the safety and the health and the well-being of our, of, of our people and our earth. Some people say that the biggest collateral damage is the earth itself. And I understand why they would say that. However, I don't agree with it. I think the biggest collateral damage is America's children. They are not old enough to vote, so they don't have any, any they're not a constituency. They're not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage. I assure you, if more of those mass shootings were at hedge funds, we would have common sense gun safety laws by now. There are so many ways that policy after policy after policy is spent on making it easier for those who already have to get more. Just sucking the resources out of the situations that actually provide for nutrition for our children, mental health for our children. I have met elementary school teacher uh, principals who have told me they have elementary school children on suicide watch. I mentioned earlier that when I was 12, 13, I attempted suicide. And guess what? I was in the hospital and I took a week off school. My parents took me home. They, the doctor's like, do you want to put them? It was because my mom and dad were fighting all the time. She was in and out of the house missing. It was right before she was diagnosed with schizophrenia where I was just confused. I was a confused child. No one was talking about mental health. Um, and then we went home. Like nothing happened. No education, no help. I went back to school. I was just the weird girl in school. I became very shy. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I became very insecure because there were no resources. Not a not a school therapist or counselor came to me. I was just put back. But let's not separate that no. from the fact that your mother did not have the help she need, 
needed, plus whatever other social and economic conditions were contributing to your parents having such a hard time between themselves. So your symptoms were the symptoms not just of what was going on in your life, but what was going on in the larger society. So then when we talk about how you didn't, there wasn't mental health for you, that's true, but even that is the level of the symptom. You know, we have children who are traumatized by the time they go to kindergarten. I'm sure that when you were 12, you didn't hear of many kids your age trying to commit suicide. Unfortunately, that would not be true today. Yeah, that is true today. I know many parents with children who have friends who have done that. And it's really sad. And the trauma around that and growing up in a society like that, our children shouldn't have to. But I also think that what we call mental health treatment really just means love and compassion. And in a society where there is more love and compassion, where there is more natural human relation, people can absorb the traumas of life more effectively. So it's this this whole person holistic breakdown. This is why they talk about intersectionality. We can't really look at any one area and separate it from every other area. You can't separate mental health from economics. You can't separate that from the environment and the food we eat, the fact that people don't exercise, the fact that there's so much violence. Everything's connected to everything, which is why when you were asking me earlier, how does any one person transform? I think one of the ways that we do transform is by seeking to be transformers of the world at large. So you seek it, and then you can transform yourself? Or what do you, in what way? Well, look at yourself. Yeah. I I chose. I sought it. I was in, in a depression at 22 years old in a park after a bender and said, you are meant to be something greater, Karina. That's what I mean. And I said, you're going to stop this. I read every self-help book. I went to therapy, and it was a therapy that was on a sliding scale, which I wasn't making any money, so I got it for free, um, and or like $20. And then I was resourceful. I had a skin rash. It was psoriasis all over my body, and I went to a free clinic, and the doctor was like, are you stressed out? I said, yeah. And she's like, well, it's showing up in your body. I'm not going to give you any medications. She's like, get in the sunshine and go do yoga. And I was like, okay can't afford yoga. So I found a studio in the Valley in in LA. I donated my time and took classes for free. And I just, I did the work to transform. So that is what you're saying. Like it's. That's absolutely what I'm saying. And I think we need to include that in the conversation more because we were, we are, something is going on in the society. And I think that, I think you'd agree with me. We have to be careful of turning everyone into a victim. Your story is interesting. You're missing, you're missing the punchline if it's only about the horrors that you went through. The punchline is you decided to rise above. And you were not in denial of the terrible problems that you'd had or what you went through, which were obviously harrowing with your mother and with, with your own background. I mean, just what you've mentioned here. 
But the punchline is you looked at yourself one day and said, I'm, this is not who I'm going to be, and I will not be defined by this. And I think we have to be careful because there's a temptation to, to move one direction or the other. We used to, in our society, live in this suppression and denial of what was really going on in people's lives. And then we finally popped open and we realized we have to have mental health treatment, we have to have people who care and people who listen and therapy, and in some cases, psychotherapeutic and uh, psychopharmacological intervention and so forth. Today, however, I feel there's an equally unbalanced temptation to almost glorify, embellish, pathologize every, every pain. And I think it's so important that we remember the part of your story, which was, I'm not going to live here. I had a similar situation where I was in a deep depression and I thought to myself, um, I, I considered suicide. And then I had a realization because I, I went into this, Oh, and then, you know, everybody will feel so terrible. And then I realized, for about five minutes, Marianne. And then they'll say, yeah, too bad about her. And they'll mm-hmm. go on with their lives. So where I went was where you went. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important, too. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, if you're clinically depressed, that's a lot harder. But, I mean, but absolutely. There is, but then even, and I'm no expert here on clinical depression or any medications. I'm all for whatever anyone needs. But, you know, there are a lot of, I, for my own personal experience, it was harder to say I deserve better and then take that path. It was a lot of, a lot of work. A lot of work versus staying in that path that I was in. That's my point. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. That's exactly my point and why people like yourself are so important, mm-hmm. you know? to speak for, you know, people from the Christian tradition, to speak from the resurrection, mm-hmm. not just from the crucifixion. You know, it was three days, not six days, not 12 days. And so I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard work. Yeah. But contextualize it appropriately. Yeah. I wanted to ask a question from the community that came through. Um, you mentioned, obviously, you're running for president. Mm-hmm. And I got a question from James. Um, it says, politics has become such an anxiety-ridden practice. How would you recommend that we bring less fear into politics? Well, it is a deeply toxic field of energy. And what has happened over the last few years is that because of that toxicity, a lot of people have said, I just can't even. I don't even want to have any part of it because it's so toxic and I want to live a nicer, purer, more beautiful life. But think about it. If some of the people who are the most attuned to reverence and beauty and the natural good of the world step aside from politics, what's going to happen except that it's going to become even more toxic? And what has happened now is that people realize you might not want to do politics, but as the French say, if you don't do politics, politics will do you. I've said to people for a long time in my work, good luck with all that green juice. They're poisoning the water. 
They're poisoning the air. And I think people do realize with what's going on in this country now. So when James said it's toxic, at this point, as someone running for president, no one knows that better than I do. It is as vicious and as corrupt as you fear. On the other hand, what's our alternative? How we can look at ourselves in the mirror if we don't at least try? We have to get in there. I mean, it's like what you're talking about with mental health. If you see a mental health problem, what your mother went through, what you went through, you didn't say, oh, it's so awful. I just don't want to ever think about it again. The meaning of your life is what can I do to try to be of help to others so that others will not suffer. And that's, you know, the doctor doesn't say, ooh, that, that wound looks so awful on your hand. Let's look at your knee instead. The whole point is to bring the light into the darkness. So the fact that it's anxiety-ridden means that we have to learn the principles by which we both endure that and transform that. We have to. It's our responsibility. I agree. Always run to the darkness. There's change that has to be made um, in any small way. And you don't, you know, you don't have to do what I'm doing. You don't have to run for president. There's like little things that you can do to make change in the world, to make the world a better place. You know, in that quantum field of ultimate possibility, yeah. there is no small or large. Yeah. yeah, It's really not about how big or small on the, on the level of form. It's how deep or shallow. Mm-hmm. If you sit with one person, like talking about the mental health, if you sit with one person who really needs someone to listen to them today, and you just took the time to be with them and were really present, that wasn't a small thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I knew that in my work. I could be talking to a thousand people. I could be talking to one person. I wouldn't say the thousand people is big and the one person is small because you can go deeper with one person. I've met, you know, hundreds, thousands, thousands of people. And the stories that just taking the time to listen to someone and being there, I think listening is the best thing to do um, when someone's sharing their story is just listen and have compassion. And that is the essence of mental health. I mean, when we're talking outside the psychopharmacological, if we're talking about the non-psychopharmacological intervention, that is the basis of therapy. Right. Somebody listening with compassion and non-judgment. And that's where I feel the most. You can ask my husband whenever I just talk to a small group of people individually and spend 10 minutes with someone. And I feel like just that conversation really opened them up and made them feel seen. That's a huge step. And so anyone out there can just And that's listen. why your company has been such a success. I mean, the, I agree with what you said before about the physical. And when people receive the guidance that they need to get out of their malaise, it's like how you felt about the yoga studio. You know, you have that portal. For some people, it's physical. For some people, it's emotional. For some people, it's food. Whatever it is that's the portal that you, that, that, that you feel the possibility of lifting up, rising up out of this mud, this pool of mud, that you, you get to a point in your life and you realize, if I don't address this, it could go on forever. And that's how I feel about America today. People are beginning to spiral down. It's locked up. There's nothing I can do. And even people of wealth say, well, 
I'll probably be able to escape the worst of it. But they know in their hearts, it's not just about whether I can escape. And that's where people are today. People know, I don't care what your conditions are. We have two choices. Spiral down. And people are starting to. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I see it all around. People are spiraling down. It's locked up. There's nothing we can do. It's not what it's supposed to be, but there's nothing I can do. Or we say, hold each other's hand right now. Toughen up because we're going to save this thing. The abolitionists saved it and the women's suffragists saved it and the early labor movement organizers saved it and the civil rights workers saved it and it's our turn. And that, to me, is the zeitgeist. And that's, that's the same thing in political terms as you and I were talking about in personal terms where you simply say, I'm not going down. That's not how, that's not how my life is going to end. And that that's not how our democracy is going to end. And that's not how this epic of history is going to end because on our watch, we will not allow that. And we have to collectively make that same decision that you made. And when you did, and that, you know, how your life was changed by that one doctor. That one doctor who said, go sit out in the sun and go do yoga. And then just the fact you had that intention, the next thing you know, there was a yoga studio. The next thing you know, well, could I work here and take the class in everybody's life? And that's what we were talking about at the very beginning. Everybody's story is different, but it, the specifics of the story aren't as important as that there's one big story, which is that there are forces in the world that would bring you down, and there is a spirit in us all that would lift us up. Thank you, Marianne Williamson. Thank you for being here. Any last words you want to share? Just that it's exciting, the conversations that I feel are going on, including this one. Yeah. That I think there's a line in The Course in Miracles that says, it begins, healing begins when you consider the possibility that there might be a better way. And like you said, you feel people spiraling down as I do. But if we just consider the possibility there could be a better way, we'll find it. I believe that with all my heart. I believe it too. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love, the type of love that will defeat anxiety, the type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in, to be who you already are. The big silence.